Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us today will be Dr. Leah Acosta, a neurologist specializing in neurodegenerative disorders like dementia, which she is going to update us about today. Now, Andrew, we covered this about four years ago in our, our first year, our first summer of recording. Why is it important to do an update now? Well, I'd say there's a lot of reasons. Dementia is something that I would say probably affects most people uh, in their life in some way, either through a loved one or themselves. And it's something that I know in just talking to patients, people are constantly worried about. Uh, that's one of the mm -hmm. most common things that we'll talk about, especially at wellness exams as folks get older. You know, I'm having memory issues. What is normal? What is abnormal? Why it's important to figure out what can we do about it? It's going to be a good episode. I think so. Um, I know recently uh, my father died and he had progressive dementia for mm, five to seven years that we we noticed it. And uh, yeah, it had a profound effect, especially when he was in a nursing home and during COVID, you know, eight hours away from us. It's really hard to communicate with someone with dementia who's not very verbal from a distance. Thank God for, uh, you know, we could video chat with him and he could at least see us and we could sing to him. We could pray with him which was, was quite valuable. Uh, I'm sure on a daily basis, this is probably part of your practice. You know, it, it, it is. It's not, not as much as some people's, I'm sure, but the times that I've run into dementia, especially in the outpatient setting, they're memorable because they bring unique challenges and everybody's different. Their situation's different. Their support system's different. I've got a story. It's kind of a sad story mm -hmm. um, related to COVID and dementia as well, where oh. I had a patient who uh, I I really cared for, really nice guy. He reminded me of a Pixar character, just uh, <laughs> the funniest, little, kindest gentleman. Um, and he was just the nicest guy. And uh, I probably had known him for five or six years. And you know, he had described some memory issues early on and he was kind of casual about doctoring anyways. And so he'd miss appointments here and there. And then over time, you could just see it was getting worse and worse. And this gentleman uh, had no relatives, no family mm. to speak of. Um, and there's at least two or three times that we made, uh, you know, way above average efforts in trying to locate or identify family members but as things were getting worse, we, you know, we reached out to Adult Protective Services and stuff to help him. And this guy had been living on his own, still driving to the office for appointments occasionally, which kind of scared all of us to death. And yes. ultimately, we're like, you know, he last last visit, I saw him. He didn't remember my name. Uh, oh. He didn't remember the meds he was taking. And he drove there. And uh, I said, okay, this is not okay. So we were trying to figure out, you know, the laws and Basically, you had to get police involved to try and to to kind of take away his license. They had to be called and said, we don't think he's safe to drive. And we thought that, you know, this is the best thing because he's definitely not safe to drive. Best for him and best for us because he was living on his own. But when Adult Protective Services went out there, his house was perfect, immaculate, Figures. definitely cleaner than mine. I mean, it was great. <laughs> well, we we got him kind of. In, involved into the system and they put him in a nursing home and he got COVID and died two weeks later. And oh my goodness. And this guy had, I mean, dementia for sure and definitely not safe to drive and living on his own with nobody in the world, but generally been doing great at home. And so on the medical side of things, you know, doctors always second guess themselves. You know, yeah. what should we have done different? How could this have been prevented? And sometimes there's medical errors. And this is a good example where I don't think we necessarily did anything wrong. You couldn't predict that, but right. it just shows how complicated 
care for people with dementia is. And uh, it did not work out well in this patient's case. And so we, you know, I, I feel sad about that for sure, but I'm not sure what I would have done different. And uh, I think it's a telling story because it highlights some of the challenges that, you know, like your story as well, family members are trying to deal with apart from the medical side of things, just the daily life. And then we're also going to talk about some of the ethical stuff with feeding tubes and whatnot at the end of life. Yes. Um, there's a lot to yeah, cover the, here. It's a complex issue. Well, this episode was actually suggested by our, by our friends at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. <clears throat> they said some of the most challenging ethics consults they get revolve around dementia. So to start the second half of the interview with Leah, and she's been prepped with the questions, uh, we have some questions which are from our friends there, and it's a clinical scenario uh, and I think that's going to be exciting to see how Leah answers that. Yeah, I think it'll be great because these are things that I get to talk to people about. I know it's the biggest things people are asking about when they have a loved one nearing the end of their life with dementia. And uh, hopefully we can be a resource and point people in the right direction. Uh, you know, Yesterday I had another sweet dementia patient. Most patients seem to be sweet when they get dementia. Some turn the other way, even though they were always sweet before. But this one, God bless her soul, every every 20 or 30 seconds now. Now, what are you doing to me? Oh, cancer. I thought it might be cancer. And, oh, my niece came up from, you know, X city. She always comes up to take care of me. Yep, isn't that great of her? 30 seconds later. <laughs> did you know my niece came up all the way, hour and a half to take care of me today? Wow, that's wonderful. And to try to treat each time like it's the first time you're hearing it is a challenge. I don't know. People who take care of dementia patients, I think, are heroic. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a unique gift. And if people don't have it, they get it real quick because, you know, you just you have to learn patience to be able to care for these folks with love. I, I remember another patient of mine, as her dementia got worse, uh, her voice just got softer and softer. And so it was mostly whispers at the end of it, everything. I'm like, yes. I can't hear what you're saying at all. Oh, put your ear <laughs> but up next there. Pleasant, uh, such a pleasant person. So by far and away, most pleasant uh, people are, are the memories I have. But like you said, sometimes it affects the personality in negative ways too. And how do you cope with that as a family member? You know, so yes. lots to cover. Well, the only data we're going to give you in the first segment is from age 65 to 74, about 3% of Americans are diagnosed with dementia. The next decade from 75 to 84, there's 17% and just about a third of those 85 and over. But our medical trivia question of the day, category brain power. Yes, the brain is made of neurons. That's the fancy word for nerve cells. How many nerve cells are in the average adult brain? Multiple choice. A, 10 million. B, 100 million. C, 1 billion with a B as in boy d 10 billion or e 100 billion and the bonus how many unique connections between two different nerve cells are there in the brain we call these synapses for these answers you have to wait till the end of the show but after the break here we'll be back with dr leah acosta on dementia here on dr doctor Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where we have Dr. Leah Acosta, who is an expert in neurodegenerative diseases with us. She's at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, but she graduated with high honors from George Washington University and completed studies in psychology, philosophy, and physiology, the three Ps, I guess, at Oxford University in the United Kingdom. She did her uh, doctor and neurology residency at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, then a fellowship in cognitive and behavioral neurology at the University of Florida. She focused on creativity, which is a fascinating thing. Maybe another show on that. Her interest in this topic stems in part from her own hobbies of creative writing, drawing, and calligraphy. She joined Vanderbilt University Med School in 2013. She got a master's in public health at Vanderbilt, the eternal student. She's co-editor of the humanities section of the journal Neurology. She conducts clinical research in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. She also teaches students and enjoys teaching students and residents very much at Vanderbilt University, and she's an active member of the Nashville Guild of the Catholic Medical Association. She's also has some wonderful children, and we're happy to have Leah Costa with us. Welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. So Leah, how did you get interested in pursuing research in the area of dementia? Yeah, it's an interesting lifelong story, actually. Um, my mom actually does stress and pain therapy, and when I decided I was going to be a doctor when I was about six, 
I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist. Why did you wait so long? <laughs> and so all throughout undergraduate, you know, again, majoring in psychology and then going on to graduate studies, psychology was definitely at the forefront. I just fell in love with some books that I read about, all, you know, written by Oliver Sacks when I was an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And just fell in love with the abnormal psychology, you know, some of the pathology is really interesting to me. And so I thought I was going to do psychiatry up through medical school. And then I just fell in love with neurology. And what I loved about neurology was I loved being able to physically examine somebody to do a thorough neurological exam and be able Mm. to localize where the lesion was, whether it was in the peripheral nervous system or in the central nervous system. And then I just, again, always having loved the brain. I really loved specifically within behavioral neurology how if you did a careful interview, you asked the right kind of cognitive questions, you did a cognitive screening exam, you in, in conjunction with the neurological exam, you could localize exactly what parts of the brain were not working properly when you examine a patient with some sort of cognitive impairment or dementia. And so that's why I decided to do fellowship in this area because I just, just thought it was intellectually fascinating. I also love the patient population uh, just because... Older patients have the best stories, and so it's always fun talking to them about you know their kids or their grandkids or the work that they did or the things that they're doing in their retirement. Another personal interest of mine with this was my uh, maternal grandfather actually had dementia, so he had a series of strokes and had uh, what's called a vascular dementia um, because his cognitive um, function declined with each stroke that he had, so a little bit of a personal connection. He started having that about... Mm, when I was in grad school, starting medical school. And so I didn't really see it personally because he was in the Philippines at that time. But just, you know, hearing the stories about how he had changed was something that I think subconsciously probably influenced my decision to a certain extent. Well, Leah, you you brought up the term vascular dementia. Mm -hmm. What, maybe even more basic, what is dementia? And how is that different than Alzheimer's disease? Or is that just one type of dementia? What are the terms we should think of? Yeah, that's a very common question that I get from patients. I'm glad that you asked that. So dementia is more what we call an umbrella term that means that a patient is having problems with his or her memory, thinking, language, some other some aspect of their cognitive function to the point where they have a decline in their usual daily tasks. So if they are still working, they're not able to work the same way or they're not able to work at all, or even just with hobbies, you know, somebody who plays their weekly bridge game, you know, they have a decline in their card playing skills, and that can be a sign of dementia. So basically, it's any medical reason why somebody is having a decline in cognitive function where it impairs their their daily tasks. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, for example. And so the analogy I like to give to patients is that if you think about the word fruit, you know, you know what fruits are, you got apples and oranges and bananas and things like that. So dementia equals fruit. And so when you have the different types of dementia, you got your different types of fruits, you got your apples and your oranges and bananas and your kiwis and your mangoes and things like that. And so I like to help distinguish that for patients, because not all Alzheimer's disease is dementia, not all Alzheimer's disease is dementia. That's, I think, where people get most confused about that terminology. Oh, so you can have Alzheimer's disease without having dementia? Yes. So the general categories that you can get are basically if somebody has normal cognition, uh, somebody can have a mild cognitive impairment stage of their cognitive impairment where they have some decline in their cognitive function. Again, memory, thinking, language, Mm -hmm. some aspect of their cognitive function, but it's not affecting their activities of daily living to the point where they've had to stop doing stuff. And then the next stage, when they start having a decline in those activities of daily living, that's when it's classified as having a dementia. So there's a little bit of a gradation. This is terminology that's really evolved over the last one to two decades. And so we're still you know, trying to refine the definition of some of these things. But there is a way where somebody can have an earlier stage of cognitive impairment that's not quite full-blown dementia, so to speak, but it can be in more of a mild cognitive impairment stage. So dementia affects people's personality. We see their personalities changing. First, how does it do it? And can you predict how somebody's personality will change with dementia? Mm -hmm. That's something that I see to a varying extent, and it really depends on the individual. And that really ultimately depends also on the type of dementia. So for example, there are certain types of dementia that by their definition change somebody's personality. So for example, there is a type of dementia called frontotemporal lobar degeneration. Some people may have also heard that referred to as frontotemporal dementia. And one of the main types of frontotemporal lobar degeneration is what we call behavioral variant 
frontotemporal, lobar degeneration, or FTD or FTLD. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yes. All these terms. Yes. And you know the I the def- why everybody lumps them together. <laughs> yes, and also just all the, the all the. Uh, I mean, medicine is rife with alphabet soup, anyways. But you know, FTD for short. Yes. And so the definition of of FTD is patients have a marked change in their personality. So you know, all of a sudden they were always really mild mannered and kind of meek. And all of a sudden they're just brash and out there. Or they're yes, swearing left yes. and right. They're going out at yes. all hours. You know, you can see those kinds of personality changes and that is not uncommon in that specific type of dementia. And in other types of dementia, I see almost more of just an enhancement of who that person naturally is. So if they're just gentle and sweet, they just get more gentle and sweet. <laughs> if they're... <laughs> Maybe a little difficult to deal with that baseline. <laughs> that can also get enhanced, more unfortunately, <laughs> more difficult. Yes. You know, more stubborn or uh, you know more opinionated, and you know things like that. And so it really just depends on the type of dementia. And it's really hard to predict how some people may change. Again, it depends on an accurate diagnosis of the type of dementia, just some of those changes that you might see. Okay. Well, one of the things that people ask about is getting a diagnosis specifically Mm -hmm. of like Alzheimer's disease. How do you diagnose people with Alzheimer's disease? Sure. So I'm going to take that question uh, in two parts, just because as we talked about, the diagnosis of dementia is a a broader term um, compared to specifically diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And so with most of the dementias, and, you know, mostly I deal with what are termed the neurodegenerative dementia. So there's a neurological etiology for these symptoms, a neurological reason why these patients are having these symptoms. Um, Most of them are what we call clinical diagnoses. And so you basically check the box for certain symptoms to meet diagnostic criteria for those different types of dementias. And so um, as part of any good general dementia workup, there has to be an examination by specialists in the area. And I think a lot of primary care doctors, geriatricians, psychiatrists, neurologists are usually comfortable making this kind of a diagnosis. You can subspecialize as I did within this field where I've done subspecialty training by doing a fellowship in the specific area. Uh, but you know, you don't necessarily have to see a specialist in the area, even though it can be helpful, especially if it's more of an unusual presentation. So as part of that workup, you usually talk to the doctor Often patients with dementia don't realize they have dementia. That's one of the common symptoms that we see depending on the, on the type of dementia. And so they're usually accompanied by a caregiver or loved one, you know, typically a spouse or child or somebody like that, who can help support the symptoms as to what the patient has been exhibiting. And then there's, of course, usually an exam that goes with it. And then most workup includes getting blood work. So blood work for treatable cause of memory problems, whether somebody's got an endocrinological problem like thyroid disease or a vitamin deficiency, because some of those things can manifest as having a dementia, usually getting some sort of a brain imaging, like a computerized tomography or CAT scan, CT scan of the head, or even getting magnetic resonance imaging or an MRI of the brain can be helpful just to make sure there's not something else going on like a tumor or, you know, somebody actually had a stroke and nobody really realized it or something like that. Uh, so that's generally the, the basic workup for having a dementia. As far as the specific diagnosis for alts, oh, sorry, was that a question or? No, so if, if, if a okay. listener thinks that mom or dad, grandma or grandpa has dementia, what's the first appointment they should make? I think definitely starting with the primary care doctor, just because usually that is the physician who knows the patient the best. And so just to make sure there's nothing, you know, that they've been keeping an eye on something, you know, whether the sugars have been really high, or again, maybe that thyroid has been hard to control, just making sure that there's nothing else going on that would potentially be contributing to those symptoms. So definitely starting with the PCP. And if the PCP thinks that a referral is warranted, then they would make that referral again, whether it's to, you know, psychiatrist, neurologist, or um, somebody else specifically. So now we know we have fruit in the shopping cart. How do we figure out which fruit we have? (laughs) Exactly. So it really, again, it's it's part of that workup. So there are characteristic changes that you can see, for example, with Alzheimer's disease on brain imaging or, you know, Alzheimer's disease versus frontotemporal dementia, FTD that I referenced earlier, typically has a a different appearance on the brain. You know, specific to Alzheimer's disease, the question that you um, asked me earlier, Andrew, usually the clinical diagnostic criteria and doing you know, the brain imaging, the blood work to rule out treatable causes of dementia is sufficient. Uh, sometimes, depending on what the presentation is, if there's still some diagnostic uncertainty, there are additional tests that could be done. So for example, somebody could get a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture to look at spinal fluid to check for changes related to Alzheimer's disease. There's also um, some imaging 
that can be done. So uh, fluorodeoxyglucose uh, positron emission tomography or FDG PET scan can be done, which basically looks at um, sugar metabolism in the brain, which can indicate an underlying de dementia. Um, some academic medical centers also have access to other types of PET imaging modalities like amyloid PET and tau PET that can mm -hmm. look at in vivo imaging uh, you know, while somebody is still alive to see presence of that pathology in the brain. That's usually pretty oh, and specialized. And by the way, those are the proteins that are deposited in the brain in high numbers that cause some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's, that tau Correct, and specific the Alzheimer's amyloid. disease, the child amyloid, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. That's great information. Um, what people really want to know is when is my forgetfulness normal and when is it a problem? Yes. So I think one common misconception and understanding we're trying to address is that dementia is inevitable as we get older. Because a lot of times people just brush things off. Oh, you know, grandma, that's just, you know, old age. And it's normal if she doesn't know how to, you know, cook her famous Christmas cookies every year. She doesn't remember the recipe anymore, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, because I mean, I think we all know people up in their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s, who don't have any degree of cognitive impairments. We're really right. trying to emphasize to, to people that Maintaining one's cognition is to be expected and hoped for <laughs> as we get older. I think some aspects of cognition that change as we get older, for example, coming up with words for things or coming up with names for people. Because you think about how many people named, you know, Tom or Andrew you've met over the course of your life. It's probably a lot names of people are the worst. when you're getting up there. Because <laughs> I've met so many people by the same name. So it's not that hard. I mean, I remember even my fellowship mentor who's been practicing medicine for over 40 years, like he personally would reassure patients. He's like, I forget names of people sometimes too. And that's okay. So I think, you know, it's normal for there to be a little bit of a delay sometimes or even forgetting just because when you've got a lot of competing information there, it's normal to forget that. And I also tell patients sometimes, you know, they get frustrated with themselves because it takes longer to come up with information that, you know, they used to know in a snap. And I tell them, you know, Let's be honest. Can you run a mile as fast as you did when you were 18 years old? Most people say no. And I tell them, well, you know, it's kind of not fair for us to expect the brain to function the same way as we did decades ago, because the brain can also slow down too, to a certain extent. So even if it takes you a little bit longer to get there, as long as you get there, it's probably not something to be worried about. So there are some aspects, again, of that slowing or, you know, when there's a lot of competing information that is pretty natural. I think when I would start to get worried about it is if people start to notice persistent symptoms, or it does start to affect those daily activities. So again, you know, grandma, okay, you know, grandma forgets my name, but then they start mixing up names of kids and grandkids, or in some cases, great grandchildren, you know, they're, they're thinking neighbors are their children, or, you know, that kind of a change. Or if they're, again, needing a lot more help doing stuff or they've had to stop doing. So like I give the example of grandma and her Christmas cookies, you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, maybe one year she forgot to put the salt in, you know, and then maybe the next year she forgot a couple of ingredients. And then maybe the next year she didn't remember the recipe at all. You know, it's that kind of a change where I would start to get more worried when somebody is either needing a lot more assistance doing stuff that they used to be able to do without any problems or they simply can't do it anymore. Leah, you, you had made a comment that uh, earlier that I caught on to is that frequently people with dementia don't realize that it's a problem. Yes. Mm -hmm. it, it, is it safe to say the other way around? People who are worried about their memory so much, most of the time <laughs> it's not dementia. I mean, I feel like I've seen a correlation, but you're the specialist. Yeah. It's, it's hard to make a, a blanket statement, but generally speaking, in a lot of dementias, not all of them, um, especially as the disease advances, patients don't realize that they have a memory problem. Now, some studies have specifically looked at this and they found that maybe in earlier stages of the diseases, maybe some patients do have a little bit more insight into that awareness. So for example, just using Alzheimer's disease, if we look at a patient who has a mild cognitive impairment, secondary to Alzheimer's disease, they might realize they're having problems with their memory and they might even come to you and say, yeah, I've got problems with my memory versus when they're more advanced in the disease process, they might be like, no, my memory's fine. You know, my, my brain's working great. Uh, so it's not something that is uh, always seen in patients who have cognitive impairment. Um, I do see also a large number of patients who are 
inordinately worried about their health. And in some of those cases, it's because they just have a heightened awareness because, you know, mom was diagnosed with dementia. Or sometimes, for example, in people who are really depressed, um, they tend to glom onto the negative. And so they start to get worried that they're forgetting things because, you know, they remember the one time they forgot something and they don't remember the 99 other times that they remembered it, you know. And so it is a little bit of an inverse correlation from what you've seen, Andrew, because I've also seen that in, in my patients as well, where the ones that tend to be the most worried are often not impaired or maybe are more in early stages of the disease versus the people that have the anosinosia, where that, the medical term for that they don't know that they're impaired tend to be more with advanced disease. Leah, before we get to the second half of the interview after the break, which is going to mainly cover a lot of ethical things and some Catholic-specific questions, I think the main question I have, and maybe a lot of listeners have, is, okay, I have a strong family history of dementia on one side mm-hmm. of my family. And I've seen the, the, the study of the religious sisters who let their brains be um, you know, autopsied after death sure. and found that some of them had shrunken brains and signs of you know Alzheimer's that was very advanced, yet clinically- they were normal. So is mm-hmm. there something we can do to prevent the effects? And if so, at what age should we start doing them? And what should we start doing? Should have started it yesterday. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, it's never too early to start because uh, a lot of things that we know are associated with a higher risk of developing dementia are things like vascular risk factors. So high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, all those kinds of things. So making sure any medical problem is appropriately diagnosed and treated. There's also been a lot of research showing the benefits of cognitive exercise, physical exercise, a healthy diet. So specifically the Mediterranean diet, or there's a newer version of that specific to patients who have high blood pressure called the mind diet. We're focusing on things like fresh fruits and vegetables, lean meats, healthy fats, you know, avoiding things like butter and deep fried things and a lot of red meat. You know, I live in the South because I'm a natural. A lot of deep fried things here in the South. So I joke with patients about, you know, trying to minimize that kind of food in the diet because the studies have shown that people who are cognitively healthier, physically active, addressing their medical problems, eating a healthier diet, they can lower their risk of having um, developing dementia. It's not 100%, but those are all things that you can do just to be healthier in general and also decrease one's risk of developing dementia. What is cognitive exercise and what's the effect of socializing? Yes. So yeah, that's great. I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I should have mentioned that specifically as well. So two things, as far as the cognitive exercise, whatever you can do to engage the brain. So for a lot of patients, you know, like sitting back and watching hours and hours of television, not the most stimulating activity, but things like playing card games or, you know, playing with your grandkids or reading or, you know, any kind of activity like that, that helps engage the brain in a different way. There's also been studies about patients who take up new hobbies, like they try to learn a new language or start doing art or, you know, picking up a new hobby can all be ways of exercising the brain. Socializing is also really important because it's a good way of exercising the brain. Because, you know, if you're talking with different people, you're engaging in different conversations, you know, you might not have thought about that particular topic, but you meet somebody new and that comes up. So that helps stimulate those neural networks and maybe, you know, strengthen some of those pathways. And so that socialization is not only good for just cognitive health, but also for emotional health, because a lot of times if people are isolated, which we've seen a lot of in the pandemic, unfortunately, yes, you know, it's important for people to maintain those emotional connections because that overall helps one's health. And of course, can also help one's cognitive health. So what's good for the heart is good for the brain is part of what you're saying. Yes, that's definitely a common adage. We'll be back with more of On Dementia with Leah Costa here after the break on Dr. Doctor. And we are back with Dr. Doctor, and we're talking about dementia today with Dr. Leah, super subspecialist in dementia. (laughs) Tom Tom listed everything. I can't remember them all. I hope it's not dementia for me. Um, (laughs) We're into the second half of the show where we're going through case studies, and these are from our friends at the NCBC. So, Leah, I'll I'll start out with this first one. These are a little bit long, but this is an 85-year-old woman with advanced dementia. She's lost the ability or maybe forgotten how to swallow. The nursing home hospice provider has a policy that when patients can't feed themselves or give drink to themselves, uh, they don't offer any food or fluids. And specifically, they don't give them a feeding tube or IV fluids. The family members are worried because their loved one has not had anything to eat or drink for three days. And they're worried that that's contributing to their mother's death. 
this is something that happens a lot. How should we think about this? What should we do, especially as Catholics? Sure. So that's a scenario that um, I see every once in a while in patients with advanced dementia, because sometimes as the dementia advances, certain bodily functions shut down. So for example, um, you know, people just forget to eat or they forget to swallow um, or, you know, there's some aspect of their bodily function that is impaired. And so um, it's something that I typically see in a more advanced dementia and it can be really difficult um, for for family members to deal with it. Because, you know, as we discussed earlier, sometimes, especially in in dementia, um, patients aren't aware that something's going on. And so um, they... They're usually okay. It's more affecting the the patient's family members. So it's something it's, that I think a mm-hmm. lot of people kind of feel pressure to be the one to decide, especially if there's a policy that says this is not an option. Then it's sure. I think a lot of patients feel like, holy cow, this is on me to figure this out. So yeah. I guess to clarify, maybe medically speaking, how should we approach the question of providing nutrition and hydration for advanced dementia patients sure. who can't swallow anymore? Sure. So medically speaking, you know, of course, we want to factor in what the patient's and family's wishes are regarding um, an invasive procedure. So just to bear in mind, for example, there are different types of feeding tubes. So there are temporary feeding tubes, uh, for example, a nasogastric tube that go from the nose to the stomach, and there are more permanent feeding tubes that can be put into the stomach. And even those aren't necessarily permanent, you know, sometimes people get them removed at a later stage or they don't use it. So it's not necessarily an all or nothing thing. So I think it's really important to always remember, first and foremost, especially as physicians and especially as Catholic physicians, the dignity of each person and these basic needs and, you know, rights that we have to um, nutrition and hydration. And I think it's important that all that is always offered to the patient. Now, sometimes patients have different physical changes that makes them unable to, you know, to swallow um, or even sometimes bodily processes change and nutritional needs change and people don't eat or drink as much as before they had dementia. And especially as dementia advances, those kinds of nutritional needs can also change. So I think it's always important to offer, especially through hand feeding, food, water, as best we can. But sometimes we have to acknowledge the fact that some patients can't process food and drink the same way that they used to. They may not have that same drive to seek that kind of, you know, nutrition and hydration. And just, you know, as those metabolic needs change, sometimes it's not feasible to have that happen. So how can we tell when it's the time that, you know, if it's within days of death, withholding food and water is not immoral. How Mm -hmm. can we tell when that might be the case? Sure. And I think it's always important to offer, as we talked about before, there's been a lot of research about hand feeding and how sometimes that's as good as, you know, putting in a feeding tube, just taking the time and being patient. And if somebody basically isn't making any moves to, you know, chew or swallow or to seek out food, it's not like you're deliberately withholding nutrition and hydration from them. You're offering it and you're trying to, you know, put a few ice chips or something like that. And as long as you're attempting to offer those basic needs of food and water, if the body isn't ready to process it, then I think you've done your, you know, you've done your best and you've done your duty. So in other words, you, if, if you think they might live for weeks or months with mm-hmm. food, can a feeding tube be ethically withheld if their cognitive decline, their thinking ability is no longer there to remember how to swallow or how to eat? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to differentiate as well if somebody has a treatable cause and if somebody has a permanent cause that's affecting their hydration. Sure. So the most memorable example that I have from my experience is I have a patient who was diagnosed with progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a type of dementia. Yes. And he was having a lot of difficulty articulating words and swallowing. And he had an acute worsening of his symptoms, was seen at a local hospital, and they were basically just writing this off as his PSP. And knowing yes. the patient and his wife really well, I was worried that he had had a stroke. And so I pushed the outside hospital to get a brain MRI to evaluate for a stroke. And lo and behold, he had had a stroke because I had had conversations with the wife and with the patient about feeding to him. And it's not something he necessarily wanted, you know, over the course of his PSP. But because he had had a stroke, I knew there was a chance he could improve and regain some of the function that he had lost because most strokes tend to get better. And so when we had the diagnosis, he did get a feeding tube placed. And he lived for another two years after that incident. 
which the wife was told for that extra time with him, because if we had just written him off as just as dementia can't swallow anymore, she would have had two years fewer with him. So here's the second part of the question. The NCBC really wants your advice on. So assuming either that no nutrition and hydration are offered because they've turned it down or they're turning it down when hand feeding is offered. How can family members be assured with moral certainty that their loved one will die as a result of their underlying dementia and not due to dehydration or starvation? That's a common question the NCBC gets. And I think it's important, you know, obviously when one is dealing with that situation in the moment, just to look at the history of the patient, because if you see that dementia has been advancing to the point where people aren't swallowing, where people aren't really taking in that food and drink, this is a natural progression of that dementia where the body's just ready to go. Cause it's not, you know, not just those functions. It's, you know, the heart is changing and the kidneys are changing and things like that. And so it's not oh. uncommon for that aspect of the bodily function, swallowing digestion to also get impaired. And so all those things can be seen with advanced dementia where this is a part of the disease process. That makes sense. That's exactly what I saw in my dad three months ago when he died with Alzheimer's. His kidneys shut down. His sodium was like 176, which I thought was incompatible with life. And he was eating less and less. So I can see now where it's, it's a whole picture. It's not just the brain. The whole body can be involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at, at what point, you know, one of the, the follow-up questions from the NCBC is, when is it feasible for clinicians to monitor for signs of dehydration or starvation as a, a way of telling if they should offer supplemental nutrition? Sure. It's important, again, to look at the patient in context of their disease process. Is this something acute? Is this something chronic? What is the underlying diagnosis? Because certainly there are things you can do to monitor, for example, kidney function, like you mentioned in your dad, Tom, yes. like, you know, what their creatinine, what are their electrolytes like? Right. And you can tell if somebody's dehydrated from that, or you can tell if somebody is, you know, not taking a lot by mouth, is there muscle breakdown, you know, measuring certain labs with that. So there are ways to monitor people's nutritional levels or hydration levels based on either tests or just their physical appearance. And just really making sure that you're careful to distinguish, is this something that's part of a chronic process? Is this something acute? Is this something reversible or not? Just keeping that in mind. So maybe to summarize a little bit, it kind of highlights the challenge of these scenarios is that it depends on the patient. And for one patient, it might be a a reasonable thing. And for another patient, it might be clearly unreasonable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to go back to the scenario I talked about with a patient with PSP, if we had ruled out everything, he did not have a stroke and we knew that he had a worsening of swallowing because of his PSP, would we necessarily have pursued a feeding tube? Maybe not because he had said before that if it's related to his disease process, he didn't want anything invasive. And especially you have to also factor in that those kinds of procedures, as commonplace as they are, it's never minor surgery when you know it's your loved one who's going through it. So there's risk of infection, undergoing the anesthesia. Sometimes you know the cure can be worse than the actual disease because if you've got a really agitated patient who's always trying to pull out that feeding tube ultimately, that's probably not the best decision to make for that patient's you know, long-term benefit. Well, let's move along to treatment for dementia. Is there any treatment that makes a difference? What are we to think of the various medications out there, Leah? Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, I wish there were more medications and are currently approved for different types of dementia. I think there is certainly some benefit, which is why these medications are approved to begin with. So again, taking the most common cause of dementia as far as Alzheimer's disease, Studies have shown that patients who are on the medications, the cholinesterase inhibitors or the NMDA receptor antagonists, they do better in the long term. So their kind of function stays more stable. It delays nursing home placement. They live longer. Because a common thing that I hear patients is that, well, I started taking it, or more specifically family members, and I don't notice any difference. And I tell them that's kind of the point. Because when I tell them that patients are typically slowly getting worse over time, The medications don't stop the disease, but it does help plateau them a little bit. They're still going to continue to get worse, but it just helps provide more of that stability. And so even though they say that's not doing anything, I know that it is because often in patients who stop it for whatever reason, I see them get worse a lot more quickly. So to help them maintain as Ah. much as possible, I encourage them to continue taking whatever medications are prescribed for their dementia. Sometimes I've had a patient recently who started taking them and he said he was doing way better. 
I said, I don't think they're supposed to work like that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, I have called the placebo effect. <laughs> Debbie Downer, Andrew. <laughs> I, I, I do have patients who tell me that they think they're doing better or, you know, more specifically family members who say that so-and-so is doing better. And I mean, if that happens, great. But as we were just reviewing, it's not something that I expect, but I'll take it if I can get it. So for people so, with, we anticipate they're going to have worsening, we've already diagnosed them with dementia, you'd mm -hmm. recommend for the most part, people should take the standard approved drugs that are available. Sure. I mean, we always have to weigh the risk benefit ratio in any one particular patient. I know medications without side effects. So there are certain things where if you have particular conditions and it's not indicated, you know, this would be contraindicated in this particular population. So for example, with some of the, the cholinesterase inhibitors in particular can be dangerous in people who have certain heart arrhythmias. And so, you know, maybe you wouldn't want to start that in somebody who might have a risk of a, of a heart side effect. Um, but generally speaking, I do recommend to most of my patients to go ahead and start on a memory medication. Leah, a lot of people, when they meet someone with dementia, aren't sure how to communicate with them. Um, you know, I've learned my own things over decades in medicine, but was never really taught. Um, what advice would you give to people for communicating with somebody with dementia? Yeah. So, I mean, I would talk with them just like anybody else because they're still human beings. They're still children of God. And so they, uh, they deserve equal dignity and respect when we're interacting with them. I think a lot of times people end up infantilizing patients with dementia and they talk down to them yes. or, you know, baby talk or things like that. And patients know if you're treating them with respect or not. I mean, and a well-meaning person could potentially approach a, a patient with dementia yes. um, in that vein, but they're still adults. They've still lived these really long, full lives. And so just talking to them like you would talk to anybody else, certain patients, you might need to remind them more. You might need to simplify the language more based on their level of cognitive impairment. But, you know, I think a smile goes a long way, you know, just like a, a nice, you know, gentle hand on, on theirs or something like that to make that connection with them, but just making sure that you're not dumbing things down too much when interacting with them. Is it sometimes important to talk about long-term memories versus recent events in their lives? Sure. I mean, a lot of patients with dementia, those long-term memories stay there for a really long time. And so they love to wax poetic about their childhood or their experience as a young adult or when their kids were little and things like that. And it's kind of a safer space for them to spend time mm -hmm. because short-term memories are so impaired. So they may not remember, you know, that their kids visited last weekend, but they'll remember that summer vacation that they went on when it was their first time going to that amusement park, you know, and so they really enjoyed talking about those long-term memories. Mm -hmm. Leah, can we talk a little bit about the caregivers as well? I know dementia can cause a lot of suffering, mm -hmm. um, not only for the patients, but also for the family and the loved ones, you know, who care for them. I, th I think about you caring for these people, even in the clinic, you must be a ninja at the virtue of patience. Um, how, how can we get better at this? Uh, if we're caring for a loved one, maybe a word of encouragement or advice in, in trying to carry on like this. Yeah. And it can be frustrating because, you know, if you've told somebody the same thing 20 times or they keep doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, I can certainly see the frustration in patients because, you know, if I'm only spending 30 minutes, 60 minutes with a patient and I'm seeing elements of that, I just can't imagine what it's like for family members who have to live with that day in and day out. I think one of the first things I always encourage patients is that the patient is still the patient. I know that sounds kind of silly to say, but especially if the personality has changed or they're doing things they normally wouldn't do, it almost feels like, well, that's not my spouse or that's not my dad. You know, it is that same person. It's just the instrument of expressing those memories or that personality is damaged because of the dementia. So just remembering that it's still your loved one. And then just reminding yourself it's the disease, not the patient. When you have to say things 20 different times, you know, and the patient's not going to remember it. And just recognizing that dignity. It's kind of like I've got small children at home that you may have seen <laughs> earlier in the, in the broadcast, um, where, you know, how many times, like, wash your hands, did you remember to say please, you know, that kind of a thing. You, you do those things because you're trying to reinforce that with your child and you love your child. And it's the same thing if you've got a loved one with, with dementia, you have to reinforce what's important and you just dig deep to find those reserves of patient to treat your loved one with dignity. When, when you have people who are in repetitive, a common thing would be like a repetitive uh, thought process. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see folks, maybe even out of frustration, challenging that. That's not reality. That's not accurate. You already mm -hmm. asked me that 20 times. Sure. Um, it, is there fruit in trying to redirect them or is it better to kind of play along, so to speak? I mean, some of these things are hallucinations or paranoia yeah. even. 
I think a couple of things that you mentioned are totally reasonable avenues to take in terms of redirecting. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, what do you want for dinner? You know, or just trying to distract them, you know, basically distracting them. I think it's important not to engage too much. I think certainly determining if the if the person feels unsafe or threatened to try to address that because maybe there is something else deeper that's going on or something that may need to be addressed with a medication. You know, if you think you, you know, you see somebody like hiding in your closet with a knife or something like that, then certainly you might need to, you know, take some steps to address that with medication or, you know, moving whatever it is that the person might be misinterpreting. Um, but, you know, I think we all love being right. And I've seen patients and family members just go at it because, well, she said this, but that's not right and blah, blah, blah. And you, it's fruitless to engage in that level of discourse because the person with memory problems is not going to remember that. And so distraction, redirection, all those things are reasonable because you just don't want to waste breath engaging when you know that nobody's going to remember what the, what the truth is. I've read that uh, sometimes a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease can be made 20 years before dementia occurs. Is there a reason to get a test done to see if we might be that way? Or should we all be doing the right things early? Or would you start one of those drugs earlier if you could diagnose it 20 years ahead of symptoms? Sure. I mean, as we talked earlier, um, I think anything you do to stay as healthy as you can physically is going to help your cognitive function in the long run. The question of what we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease is primarily still a research-related question. It's not one sure. that we're making recommendations to people, for example, who have a family history or who are concerned about their memory. Because really, one of the core aspects of the definition at this point in terms of making the diagnosis is having those documented objective cognitive changes. And so, you know, you can certainly be worried because mom had Alzheimer's disease, but it's not something where it's not like there's one test that you can do to tell you whether or not you're going to develop Alzheimer's disease. It's just trying to stay as healthy as you can and, you know, keeping an eye out for that stuff. And if it comes to a point where you are worried that you're having those changes to go ahead and get evaluated. What yeah. final advice do you have for our listeners on uh, what they should do or where they should get more information? Sure. I mean, I definitely want to encourage everybody to stay as healthy as they can so they don't have to see me in clinic. So that cognitive, <laughs> physical exercise, healthy diet, all that stuff to stay as healthy as you can. And certainly if there's any questions about any degree of cognitive impairment to first talk with your primary care doctor to get an assessment and if necessary, get a referral to a specialist. And I'm happy to see you if I need to. <laughs> Thank you, to. Leah. It's been a pleasure having you here on Dr. Doctor. We hope to have you back again. Thank you so much for having me. And we are back with Dr. Doctor. After a great interview, we've got the answer to the trivia question everybody's been waiting for about brain power. So how many neurons on average does the adult brain have? And the answers were in multiples of 10, starting with 10 million up to 100 billion. And the answer is the highest number, 100 billion. B as in boy, billion. That's a whole lot of cells. Usually but I don't think about numbers this big except for like congressional deficits and stuff like that. But <laughs> brain neurons too, they're way up there. Well, what's even more astounding is the number of unique connections between the neurons in the brain. So how many of those are there? There's a hundred trillion. T as in... As in tsunami with the silent T. No, T, <laughs> T as in Tom. So that means oh, each the world neuron. Those. I, I don't know. But each neuron <laughs> on average would have a, a connection to a thousand other neurons. That's Jeez. that's amazing. Yeah, it sounds like something happened by random chance with evolution, right? There you go. No. <laughs> Sarcasm. <laughs> that's right. So top three takeaways, Andrew, from Leah. Yeah, so many things we could talk about. I'd say I always think of homework. Number one, um, prevention. <laughs> prevention uh, is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, I've heard. And uh, the nice Thank thing you, is to try, to, to try and prevent <laughs> dementia. you you're got to do the same stuff to prevent all the other problems. So try and live healthy, eat healthier, maintain a healthy weight, exercise, have friends, get out, go to church. Um, and be balanced. Don't be uh, too crazy in one way or the other. So prevention is number one. Um, number two, I would say in regard to all the ethical stuff regarding feeding tubes, it's a question that gets talked about a lot. Um, every patient is different. 
You got to find people who know a little bit about this stuff and people who you trust. Our friends at the NCBC do ethics consults. I'd refer people to them if you don't have somebody local that you already have a relationship with. And, and um, I had an aha moment when she said the whole body is just getting ready to run down and die with Alzheimer's. And, and that really struck me, like I said, with my dad. So it, it kind of made it more rational to say that there might be times when you don't have to put down the feeding tube. That that's surprised right. I, me. I, I think some people feel like you got to hurry up and get one in before they die. And that's definitely not the case. And so it's it's very patient, patient individually. Uh, has to be decided and it has to be for the good of the patient. And there's sometimes when it's not. Yes. So, and number, number three, last but not least was a question I was interested in the drugs. Yes. Some people love them. Some people hate them. They, you can't tell a huge difference most of the time, but from the super specialist, Dr. Leah, she says that they are a good idea to do for early dementia to stop and slow the progression. So I'd encourage you all to do them. Amen. And we thank you for listening to us and some of you watching us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top where you can search over 275 episodes by topic or guest. I was keeping track. I like that. If you haven't <laughs> listened recently, we now have a video version of our podcast. Click on the YouTube link near the top of our homepage at drdoctor.org. And if you have a question or a great idea for an episode, only good ideas, please, click where it, hits. <laughs> it says submit a question. Click there. Give us the good ideas. We'll take them. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.